0: Hello and welcome to A Little Perspective with your host, Will Sigmund. Today we have a very special guest as well as another co-host like last week. Please welcome my co-host, uh, Bram Shank.
1: Hi, Will. How you doing?
0: Good. How are you?
1: Thrilled to be here today.
0: Why not do another podcast called Appleosity Weekly where we talk about Apple products and that kind of thing. But our special guest today hardly needs an introduction. (laughs) He is the author of many different books. You have hosted Nova. You've worked for Yahoo, CBS Morning News, New York Times. The list goes on and on. And most recently, your book, How to Prepare for Climate Change, has just come out, I think, at the end of last year. Welcome, Mr. David Pope.
2: Thank you very much. And I'm happy to add the third point in our geographical triangle. Yeah, North Carolina, California for you, Brom, and for me, yep. Connecticut.
0: Yeah, we're all over the place here. If you know anything about me, if you're listening to the show or you follow me on Twitter, et cetera, you know that I have a, a deep fascination with technology and accessibility and just learning about the world and humanity. And David and Brom both also have a wide depth of expertise and interest. We wanted to try to pick a topic today that we not just knew about from my own personal perspectives, but also could offer some advice. And I think it's something that is definitely relevant and prevalent in today's world, particularly in the last five years. And that is discerning information and misinformation, as it especially pertains to online resources. I'm going to let Brom kick it off and... The question here that I want to start with is how do you guys teach someone to discern and learn how to actually seek you know, truth versus fact and, and, and fiction? I'm
1: certainly sure that over at the New York Times, this is really important, discerning information from misinformation, opinion versus fact and so forth. This first idea that I have for you as far as discerning information, and I've dubbed it the Pogue Method, and here's why. I, I went back, did a little bit of time traveling all the way back to 2011, you had an awesome tribute to Steve Jobs on CBS Sunday morning, and you talked about him and you illustrated the landscape of that time in terms of consumer technology, how everybody was trying to copy the iPad, copy the iPhone, copy all of Apple's ideas. And something that I, I thought was interesting that came from this is you said, we shouldn't try to emulate ideas. We shouldn't try to copy ideas. We should copy the philosophies themselves that foster innovative thinking. Great ideas start to come naturally when you follow a concrete philosophy. My question to you would be, do you have a, a special philosophy or a thought process that dictates how you vet info online?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I think I, I, c- I could answer that question, but I think there's a darker, bigger question lying behind it when it comes to misinformation. I don't know if you remember... You guys, either of you guys, remember the commercial from the 70s where it was, it was an anti pollution ad. And they showed a city where people were throwing litter out their car windows and the, the lakes were all clouded with trash. And the, the narrator says, Keeping America beautiful is up to you. And the ad was very memorable, very effective. And it was funded by a group called Keep America Beautiful. I don't know if you remember the later, the expose, but Keep America Beautiful was a group funded not by an environmentalist organization, but by the soda companies, by, by the polluters themselves, by the makers of the cans and the bottles. And the reason they did that is there had started to be talk of legislation o- against the polluters. If you pollute, you have to pay to clean up. And they wanted to change the national dialogue to it's the consumer's fault it's our responsibility to pick up our own trash, not theirs for making it. And they succeeded. And now we have the same thing. There's a new Michael Mann book about climate change, and it's exactly the same thing. It's saying they're all saying drive less, take fewer flights, eat less red meat. They're trying to make it our problem yeah. that the emissions are polluting the earth, when really I- individual decisions are a tiny percent of it. And it's the big corporations and the gas companies and the governments that are that are really responsible for climate change. This thing about misinformation could be looked at through the same lens. That here we are asking the question, "What should we ordinary people do to not be duped?" And we should question who's asking that question, and we should start to think maybe there's some larger entity that stands to benefit from the misinformation, and it is, of course. Facebook and Twitter, the more time we spend on their websites, the more money they make. And the way you get us to spend more time is to get us emotionally riled up. And -hmm. the way you do that is you help to foster provocative, controversial things. Yeah. And And
1: the industry is dubbed this rage bait. That's what they're calling it. Oh good. Yes. Thank you. There's things you can do as a rule of thumb, always read beyond the headline. And we're going to talk about the way social media companies are starting to, to mitigate the issues that happen when you don't read past the headline. Look for four more sources on some of the topics. These are some of the rules of thumb that pop up if you just Google this. But the main thing that I want to zero in on our next idea is something called context collapse. And I don't know if you've heard of this, but it happens on social media. And we have a quote here. It says, no matter how long ago a story happened, it can sound like it's happening right now in your neighborhood. What happens with social media where Frankly, and sadly, a lot of people are getting most of their news Uh, on social media, the the playing field is leveled in terms of context, but amplifies the weight of nearly all ideas. For example, a a tweet from the president is situated next to grandma's apple pie recipe. There's really this, again, we said a reality distortion field when it comes to ideas online. How do you feel about that? How do you feel when all this information is being put under a microscope, half this information could be false?
2: Yeah. A big part of it is that everybody, now when we're talking about individual actions and our own judgments, you got to consider what's in it for the person posting this. There are motivations between everything that you guys post and everything that I post. We're all ultimately trying to be persuasive about something. We're trying to persuade, even if it's a, a funny little headline, we're still trying to convince somebody that it's amusing or that they should read our stuff or that they should follow or whatever. I once had a professor in college who said, English professor said that all writing is meant to be persuasive, whether it's in a commercial or a news story or a children's book, everything is somehow meant to be persuasive. There is that. And then there's you know, there's the human aspect of this, the mental aspect. I've, I've been working on a book about common anxieties from air travel to pandemics to children spending too much time on their screen. And in researching human fear, I discovered something really wild. No matter what your political persuasion is, the average conservative's brain has a larger amygdala, that is your fear organ, your fear center, than the average liberal's brain. Wow. And we don't know which is the cause and which is the effect, right? We don't know if your amygdala gets bigger because you're afraid of everything around you. Or whether you're afraid of everything around you because you have a bigger amygdala but it does let all of us off the hook for our tendency on social media to rage at each other <laughs> we were made this way human nature <laughs> it is and it, it depends a lot on where you grew up and what your parents taught you but yeah we come
1: preformed i agree with what you said in terms of uh, oftentimes and it begins with the headline things are meant to be uh, emotional and persuasive that's how things catch our attention. To speak to the human aspect of things, a lot of people like to say, well, I follow people that have ideas on every end of the spectrum. If I'm a Democrat, I follow a handful of Republicans. I'm informed and they feel informed, but are they really getting the full picture of the entire uh, political landscape in this case? How do you gain an understanding of the landscape as a whole? If we follow individuals or publications that repeat or amplify our own ideas, obviously we stop learning, but to speak to the anti-vaxxer thing, you have, there's extensive evidence online to suggest that even the wildest ideas, anti-vaxxing, flat earth, that those things are true. Are we really informed if we're merely constructing feeds to affirm our existing ideas? And that's one of the things I wrote down here. Me and Will are like totally pro-Apple. We love Apple. Is it detrimental to our knowledge as a whole that we follow all these pro-Apple publications? like Mac Rumors and 9to5Mac? Are we really not getting the whole picture of what Intel's doing?
2: In the beginning, the theory, well, follow people whose opinions you don't share would have been a good solution for all of us. But I I try, and some of the things that I'm seeing are are clearly designed to deceive, to tear down people who are trying their best to make it a better world. It's mean-spirited. I really feel like it's beyond the notion of just being more tolerant, of at least in the media world, that media also has an agenda. That's to get eyeballs, to sell ads. And that's why I opened by saying I think we need to start looking systemically at what's fueling these fires. Who's got us in their orbit and why? And what do they stand to gain?
0: One notion or phenomenon, if you will, that I can't remember if I brought up on this show or not. I think I have brought it up on our other podcast, but is called Parasocial Interaction. Essentially, what it means is, let's say before last week when we started talking or whatever, you didn't really know who I was, but I've known who you are for 15 plus years. And I've garnered a one-sided, one-way relationship with you in the same vein as like a friendship or however deep you want to go with it. I think some people might go a little too far with it, but essentially it's the notion of a one-sided relationship that people have with a news anchor, a radio broadcaster, a podcaster, a Twitter personality, a celebrity, whatever be the case. And I think piggybacking on what you guys are saying why do these people have us in their orbit, it it almost makes you want to step back and say, am I putting myself in their orbit, or was I slung into theirs for some reason, and now I myself believe that everything this person says or does is great. Do you think, speaking of nature versus nurture, that parasocial interaction in today's world of social media has a lot to do with that nurture.
2: That, that's an interesting point. I, I I actually feel there are many more famous people than there ever were before. And the total number of fame is getting subdivided. There's no Walter Cronkite. Mm-hmm. There's not even any Katie Couric. Katie is still around and doing a lot of great stuff, but she's doing seven different smaller outlets. And so I, I feel I'm not sure... How, how that feeds into all this. But it is interesting that social media and the internet has allowed many more people to become famous. I I did a story for CBS Sunday morning last week about Cameo, the website where you can pay a famous person. And the CEO told me that Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and YouTubers, they're all getting famous in a way that was never possible before, but not rich and famous. It's really hard to make money just for being an influencer. And that's why he justifies Cameo. The imbalance between bigwig and fan, or famous person and little person, I think, is changing. The gatekeepers between us and Tom Hanks have gone away. Now we can communicate with these famous people directly, whether it's on Twitter or Cameo or, or whatever. And I, I think in general, that's a blessing and a curse. Mm. It's good because we are all human and we shouldn't worship any human. But of course, it's bad because it means that all kinds of uninformed people now have an equivalent platform to spread misinformation.
1: That speaks to the whole idea of the the context collapse. Everyone's all of a sudden more approachable. Even these celebrities who a decade ago felt untouchable. They were sitting at the top of Hollywood Hills. Now you can reach out to them on Twitter or through Cameo whatever it may be. I, I want to take a couple steps back because... Will likes to speak to the human nature of things, which I think is really important. It sounds like we're all of the same mind when it comes to the human aspect of things. And that's that people want to feel like their ideas are being affirmed. And, And so when you talk about parasocial relationships, it goes beyond the individual. It goes beyond just people. I feel like in our modern day, it doesn't necessarily have to be a person. There's a certain subreddit that you subscribe to that you feel aligns with your ideas. And now you have... Uh, almost uh, a human relationship with an internet thread because it's igniting those chemicals within your body. And
0: it fuels that emotion in a way that is different almost. As you said, there's more famous people than there ever have been, and the way in which we are interacting with these people are not just more approachable in our brains. I think the reason why that's the case is a lot of these people, particularly the subcategory of influencers, are becoming famous in a casual way. Hey, let me be your friend. Let, let me vlog about my life and you're going to see what I do every day. And it's not... You're not seeing them in just the light that they want you to. It's almost impossible for them to feed their own timeline to you in an old sense, not in like a Twitter or Instagram sense. And so limelight is very large and i i think that the more casual and and more you like maybe post an instagram story or a youtube video or something like about your house or what you're doing or hey i'm just going for a walk come with me and it it garners that further and further and it almost makes you uh more emotional when it comes time to defend the person or the idea that the person might have.
2: I think that's so right. I remember there was a a movement online where beautiful women would post photos of themselves on Instagram without makeup, how they just wake up in the morning. And instead of people going, you're not really that attractive. Of course, as you say, people love them all the more for showing their flaws and their unattractive side. Now we identify with them Mm. even more. And Brahm, I think what you were getting at is the notion of tribalism, which used to be a sports team or maybe our church or or, or a movie star when we were teens, a rock musician or something. And I think tribalism is a big part of the, the political discord now that we have. Like you identify... I've always said, why is it that you can't believe in reproduction rights, but also be against gun control. Why is it that the menu is predefined between these two political parties on every issue? How come you can't feel this way about some things and this way about some things? And that's because of tribalism. They've they've told us that if we want to be a liberal, we believe these things. If we want to be a conservative, we have to sign up for these things. And man, if you disagree (laughs) on any of it,
0: you're out. I'm born and bred in North Carolina, so there's lots of different conservatives. But I also live in, you know, a, a, a major metropolitan city, and so there's a healthy balance, in my opinion, of both. And as I've gotten older, that menu, as you say, has become more and more into focus. And as I've gotten my own opinions fashioned to myself and and grown as a person, I find myself identifying myself as a centrist because I don't want a single menu. I don't want to be all this way or all that way. That's just not who I am. Ideas and
1: perspectives are free-flowing. They change over time. They're molded and shaped by your experiences, the knowledge you build. It's not human nature to just pick a side and, and stay with it your whole life.
0: I also think From my own perspective, being a little person, I have this sense of empathy. So when someone helps me with something, I feel that immense amount of gratitude. And I think to myself, okay, how can I help them back? And I'm not speaking for all people that have conditions, disabilities, handicaps, whatever. But I will say I do think my life experience has led me to the point that I am in large part of the way I've perceived things and interacted with people and and therefore not wanting to pick a side. One thing my mom always told me growing up was, when you point a finger, you have three pointing back at you. <laughs> and I've always tried to not be that type.
2: The thing is, I think, Will, most people are probably like you. I think most people are not aggressive, violent, extremist, insulting, non empathetic. I think that gets us back to what social media has done. It has made it impossible to tell the size of the megaphone. Everybody has the same megaphone. It's impossible to tell if we're talking to a bot or somebody who's really thought through this issue and read a lot and written a lot on it. You know what I mean? That's another one of these side effects of the social media that's led to this problem before social media we weren't polarized like this. We didn't tear each other down like this because most people aren't quite so hostile, but the people who are now have a global voice.
1: And it's a lot easier to hide behind a keyboard and type something. That's mm-hmm. a classic thing we've always heard. It's a lot easier when you're not staring someone in the face to, to push your agenda and be aggressive about it. It's and But the thing with social media is it's quite literally set in virtual stone. It's permanent. If I publish it on social media, that's forever there. And that tells people, this is where I stand. And they're going to assume, even if my perspective changes down the road, this is where I stand permanently.
2: But why does it have to be anonymous? I've said this for decades. Yes, I understand there are certain situations where you need to be anonymous. But for everything else, why can't we have the option of signing up or even the requirement of signing up with our real names? If everybody on Twitter was identified by their names and we could look them up, we would know whether they're bots, we would know what their past writings were. I, I realize this drives a lot of civil libertarians crazy. It's like, oh, it's all about anonymity. Mm-hmm. But I but, don't know, man. I think we might have crossed over that line. Definitely.
1: In, in and to speak to that, as far as different features and, and things that, that social media platforms have added over time, we've seen platforms like Instagram and Twitter add this software nudge to quote, read before you post, like retweet. It encourages you to read past the headlines. You can't retweet or like something until you actually open the article and read through it, reading past the headline. Do you think this is the answer? You, You had a talk on why products fail. It was a Ted talk that you did. And you talked about two things that stood out to me were the upgrade paradox, the abundance of features. There's no clear vision. You Talked about how Microsoft Word became a web publication tool. And I feel like we're seeing that a lot with social media platforms. Now, Twitter starts scrambling, wait, we want to be like clubhouse. And so they added Twitter spaces, Instagram climbing up and saying, we want to be like Snapchat because everybody's moving there for filters. Let's start adding that to our stories and and so forth. And so you see that a lot. There's an abundance of features, no clear vision of where they want to go. And and then you have the fix it later syndrome. And you talk about that idea quite extensively. Social media platforms were put out there as a tool. The the internet was becoming uh, a phenomena. More people had access to it. Things like Facebook. It was a fix-it-later syndrome. Let's put it out there. Let's let people interact in these new and innovative ways through the internet. And as as issues arise, they draw a line of what they're going to fix and what they're not going to (laughs) fix. And it becomes a version-by-version thing. And I think we're only just, beginning to to tackle the tip of this, as far as mitigating the spread of misinformation with this whole read before you post thing.
2: I mean, yes. On the other hand, I have to give them credit for trying to fix it later right now. If you think about any good invention, the automobile, there weren't dotted lines on the roads or speed <laughs> limits or seat belts when they invented that. Everything that's ever invented is invented first and then reined in. And so Facebook is experimenting with things like that. They are very much internally discussing the line between free speech and abusive speech and what should. Wow. I don't know if you guys have read any of these stories about what it's like to be one of the Facebook moderators. Oh boy. These thousands and thousands of workers all over the world whose job it is to look at every comment and every post and throw it out if it violates the guidelines. There are certain things that they don't accept. But of course, first of all, it's a devastatingly bad job. You come home mm-hmm. from work filled with the most toxic things that humans do to each other, and they have a you know rapid burnout on this job. But also, the gray area is just immense. I
1: have a quick point here in regards to Twitter and how it's changed and uh, matured to speak over time. You had your book that you released, David, back in 2009, The the World According to Twitter. You have extensive knowledge of what that landscape is like. What's your take on how it's evolved over time? Do you think we're going in the right direction? How has it changed?
2: Wow, yeah, that's a good question. It was really different in 2009. Any platform that starts out small has to it a small town feeling, uh, a community feeling, You feel like you're in on something that the rest of the world hasn't found yet. Mm -hmm. And then it gets bigger and it gets ruined. (laughs) And anybody can come in and piss all over it. Now we're in the third stage of Twitter where they're trying to fix it. And we don't know yet how successful it will be. I still find it amazing that those of us who live on these things are in the minority. Most Americans are not on Twitter. Yeah. It's still a, a bunch of us tech people and so on. But but yeah, so I, I would say, yeah, it went from community to the tragedy of the commons, which is the, you know, the classic case of too many people ruining a resource to trying to fix that problem. It'll never go back to the small town feeling. Maybe that's what Clubhouse is now.
0: I've had every modern social media pretty much As it launched, I've had the advantage to grow with the platform, if you will. There was a a birth of social media between 2004 to, you know, 2009. And then all of a sudden, 2016 to 2019, it just exploded. And these problems really got magnified, it seemed. And now, as you said, they're being reined in. And I feel like sometimes I have to tell people who are either... Not astringent enough with judging these social media companies or people that judge too stringently that are like, oh, everything on there is bad or whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, either A, it hasn't always been that way or B, there has to be something that happens for something to be mitigated. And as you said, we're in this era now of, okay, these are very well established companies and and platforms. And now they have to address a different type of issue, which is how do we control the monsters we've created? And it's not an easy job. I try to put myself in Facebook shoes or Instagram shoes or Twitter shoes and be like, they're trying to do X thing. I think there's lots of different people that are very critical of what they are or are not doing. And some of it's warranted and some of it's not. But... You know, even I would say Twitter specifically, I hear people talking about it being just a toxic place or this, that and the other. And every time I hear that, I scratch my head and and I think, okay. but there are things that Twitter has created like mute filters and you don't have to follow this person. You can block this person, blah, blah, blah. In a lot of different ways. Especially, I would say, with Twitter and Instagram. You can tweak the experience if you're willing to put in the time, which is not that much time, but if you're willing to put in like the upfront time and and cost, quote unquote, then you can really make these things work for you in a better way and for your mental health and for your well being and that kind of thing. I've never viewed Twitter as a negative place because I have, I guess, created this box around myself that Twitter has allowed me to build. But that's the thing, Will,
1: is you created your own box. That kind of goes back to the idea of is social media just a tool for us to reaffirm our existing ideas? Are we not growing? Mm -hmm. We're creating the box that we want to live in because we've muted all the right people, we've unfollowed all, all the people we don't want to hear from anymore that said something that we disagreed with or whatever it may be. I love David's idea of having everyone be verified. Even if it's even if I want to make a fan account for a show that I like or whatever, at least say, hey, this is Big Brother fan page verified by Bromshank or run by Bromshank. Make it like moderators and every moderator has to have an existing account on that platform that's already verified. I think that would be a great formula to rein in the media toxicity and to speak to the idea that Will had where he said, quote, "It, it hasn't always been this way. What are you talking about? Twitter isn't toxic. There really is a distinction, a dichotomy between how Will experienced it and how I experienced it. I grew up with this stuff. You guys have both seen the birth of this social media era, the the iGen, they're dubbing it. And for me, it's always been a part of my life. When I was going through my teen years was around the time when Facebook and Twitter and all these guys were reaching their teen years. They weren't really at a certain level of maturity yet. There weren't things to moderate bullies online when you were in high school and things like that. We dealt with a lot of uh, these platforms having to mature just like people do. Making immature decisions, letting people elevate the wrong ideas, not just factually incorrect ideas, but but bullying, harassment, really important things. Uh, to illustrate the dichotomy between how I experienced it and how you guys experienced it. For me, it's always ingrained in my DNA. As soon as I was old enough, the first thing I wanted to do was make a MySpace.
2: The idea of identifying yourself by name and having your identity be checkable, on one hand, I think to myself, the really toxic, obnoxious a-holes, the extremists, will still be out there. They don't care. They're trying to make a name. On the other hand, those of us who are not familiar with who's saying this or reposting this could look that person up and say, oh, I see, this person does this all the time. This is her shtick. This often happens, somebody will say something really mean about me on Twitter and I'll I'll read it to my wife and she'll, did you click and see what this person does? And incredibly, she's right, it's always a person who does nothing but say mean things about one person after another. Or it's a person who joined Twitter today mm-hmm. and has no followers. Okay, mm-hmm. it's a bot, it's not. It's nothing to worry about. And so even if we did move to this world where you could identify yourself by your name and were required to, it would put a damping effect on at least the reposting because you wouldn't think everybody says this, everybody is passing this around you'd realize, oh no, it's not everybody. It's the same old
0: people. I've always had the same philosophy. David as you, I'm out there, but the reasons that I am open and out there are the same reasons you mentioned. I want somebody to be able to look at my Twitter account or my Instagram account, say, okay, he's got a bio, he's, you know, he joined in 15 years ago or whatever. Like he's probably a legitimate person to listen to. I don't know if you're aware, uh, but Twitter is on the cusp of relaunching their verification program. And mm. that's literally going to happen if all goes to plan from what I've heard in the next two weeks. And the, they shut the program down in April of 2017. I hope that when this happens, when it launches, hopefully soon, that it does open that up for more people. Whether it be a blue check if you're X and a purple check if you're Y. I don't know, whatever be the case. Just something will, I truly believe, will help. Because it's at this point, people know what verification means that goes on in the back of their mind when they see that. I don't care what people say. There's a certain inherent, like, trust. And and you can't hide, like... A little troll, if you want to. And if, if that is the case, and all the people I care about and respect, or maybe want to get to know more about their perspectives and views, are verified, then I can weed out the people who aren't and try to focus on the ideas and the values and, and things that are going to make me a more enriched person as opposed to a more enraged person.
2: <laughs> I hadn't heard that. I think that's a fantastic example. Of the way this podcast is not just three guys complaining in a corner. We are talking as the companies in question are working on the problem. Facebook's algorithms are getting better all the time, too. I bet you they are talking about nothing else internally at these
1: companies Mm -hmm. these days. Mm -hmm. My next question is, do you think that's why people keep migrating to different platforms that largely do the same thing? Why would I go on to Clubhouse if I can... FaceTime my friends or form a Reddit group where we all share our Zooms, Zoom logins and we all hop in. Obviously, it makes the whole idea of having a conversation, having moderators, the whole thing, much more accessible. But it seems like we jump to back and forth, to and fro, between different platforms for specific features. And then the platform that we started with in the first place, many people for Facebook, starts adding those same features.
2: You referenced earlier the... The software upgrade paradox, which is that if you add enough new features to a product, you eventually ruin it. (laughs) If you improve it enough times, you eventually ruin it. In in other words, the, the brave new world of the Internet, where there are no restrictions, where anybody can be anything and say anything, it's gone. Mm-hmm. It, it's never going to happen again.
0: I, I told my buddy Smythe, I don't know if you have any recollection of him, but you put his quote in your book that Braun mentioned a long time ago. And he, <laughs> he worked with me at the Apple store, and I remember oh, him wow. showing me, I guess 12 years ago, he's like, look, I'm in this book. I was like, oh, cool. It was an early tweeter along uh, with us. One thing that you reminded me of that I wanted to suggest if you haven't seen it, and you mentioned like, Twitter being a third phase. I shared this video with Brahm and it just, it blew my mind a little bit. Are you familiar with Casey Neistat?
2: Yes. Okay. I know Casey.
0: Are you familiar with his brother, Van? No. Okay. Van recently started a YouTube channel and his videos are always, are very pensive. And one video that I would suggest you check out is, it's called We Are in a Fourth Turning. I don't know if you've ever heard of a fourth turning or Mm-mm. the four turnings. Talk about society. I'll let you watch the video. Let me know what you think. And, Ram, you saw it, right?
1: Yeah, Will sent this to me a couple weeks ago. And it's so interesting because you can go ahead and watch it for yourself. I don't want to spoil it. But it's really cool because it, it illustrates the idea that generations and their ideas and their purposes, the roles they have are cyclical. You have heroes and healers and activists, people that are breaking the status quo. And it talks about how Different generations, it's a cyclical behavior. We repeat the same thing, same actions, same roles over and over again. I think it's
0: interesting to compare the age that we're in with social media with that video and where it talks about where we are. Pivoting to your book that you just wrote, when you do stuff like research, you're trying to make things objective and factual and a little persuasive, possibly. And your latest book, How to Prepare for Climate Change... What are some of the ways, either with that being an example or some of the other essays or books or things that you publish, you do research to ensure that you feel what you're putting out there is valid and accurate?
2: Yeah, you're right. I was terrified. This book is literally how to prepare for climate change. It's where to live. Where to invest, how to how to get the right insurance, how to talk to your kids, how to renovate your house—everything you can think of that could prepare you for the disasters to come or that are already here—and I wasn't an expert on any of this stuff, not even climate change. Mm-hmm. The whole thing was research and interviews. Mm-hmm. I I realized early on this is going to have to be this massive interview program, and I, I think we can all agree that there are certain publications and institutions. For example, the chairman of psychology at Harvard or Yale or Princeton or MIT is probably going to be pre-vetted for me. They're probably trustworthy. Or a doctor who's been published in the prominent journals has been pre-vetted for me. They don't get to those positions with mm-hmm. a lot of supervision. That's how I chose those folks. But When I say I was terrified, I'm aware that climate change is is perceived as controversial. And so I knew that there was not going to be any sentence, any quote that wasn't going to be subject to scrutiny by, let's face it, an antagonistic group of readers. The original manuscript was so littered with footnotes (laughs) that the editor said, we can't put them at the bottom of the pages. We'll have them be an online appendix. If you want to look up your footnotes, it, it wound up being something like 190 pages long. Wow. <laughs> so wow. I think I might have gone overboard with the preemptive defense. I, I have to say, I, I did learn from CBS News is super old school when it comes to accuracy and stuff. I remember, I just love this story. I was doing a story on how movie theaters are trying to combat the rise of the home theater. For example, there are movie theaters that will now let you bring in your own food and let you bring in alcohol. And so we visited one of these theaters and I had a bottle of wine and a couple of wine glasses with my movie ticket and we were gonna film me walking in. And so while they're setting up the camera, I said to the ticket taker guy, hey, you know, it'd be really funny. Like I try to walk in and you take my ticket and you go, you can't take that into the theater. It'll be hilarious. Then you'll be like, just kidding, it's fine. And so he did that and it was really funny in the finished story, but I got called in by the brass at CBS and reamed out because we do not stage the news. You do not tell somebody what to say on camera. That is not news. That is acting. And I'm like, but it was a joke. I'm like, it doesn't matter. You don't stage the news. And I felt bad to be yelled at, but on the other hand, I'm like, I'm so glad that the the home of Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow is still believing in those kinds of principles. Was there a corking yeah. fee? <laughs> There's no corking fee.
0: <laughs> One other bullet point I wanted to touch on this is just particularly is from a personal standpoint of having a chronic medical condition. And I think a lot of people, they deal with a chronic medical condition, whether it's visible or not. I can't hide mine, but some people can or they don't try, but it just, it is non-visible. I would honestly say when I was thinking about this topic earlier, WebMD is probably really the first major place online where this was a controversy before social media or this, that, and the other. Anybody can go online all of a sudden and, Diagnose themselves and oh my gosh i just had a heart attack and that is like the og emotion generator of misinformation huh. yeah and so i was just kind of thinking about that and how that's evolved and thinking about when you're wanting to either help somebody or get to know somebody and you don't want to offend them by asking or whatever be the case are there certain things that you look out for and Making sure that a site like that, when you're outside the scope of social media or news, that you're saying, okay, a little checklist of, okay, I, I pretty much trust this site. That's interesting.
2: Ordinarily, I would say that sites where citizens crowdsource the information would make me nervous. Like Yahoo Answers? <laughs> yeah. And yet, look at Wikipedia. People accept Wikipedia now as the source, and it pretty much. Nails pretty yeah. much found the stasis. People can post bogus information, sure, but then everybody else comes along and cleans it up. I never would have guessed that this would fly, but it is it is pretty solid. WebMD and things, those are, I think, more the, the Encyclopedia Britannica mm-hmm. model where they have experts write the articles and the experts are themselves vetted. But I do sometimes think, what if more of the world were the Wikipedia model? Mm-hmm. Will, you and I corresponded <laughs> on Twitter about the the column i did yeah. for the times and the column was called Crowdwise yeah. about what do you do if you are curious about somebody who looks different and i would invite readers who are very tall or unusual pigment or very short or whatever to write in to tell people who are curious or rude what's the line between mm-hmm. rude and curious when is it okay to ask and Oh my gosh, the answers, I don't know if you'd agree with them, Will, but the answers were invariably really common sense. Like, I'm a person. Say hi. Make eye contact. Probably don't stop once you've passed me and turn around. Children, get a pass because children are children and they're curious. They're allowed to look. So I, I don't know, but I very much feel like there are realms like that one where if the public could chime in to add to the rest of the public's body of knowledge, it would be a better thing.
0: Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with that. I'm a person, just ask me in a way that's respectful. I fortunately have normally been in a situation where, whether it be at work or home or out and about, it's not something that I think about very often. Kids, lots of kids, being around definitely makes it more obvious, but not everybody is as fortunate as i am in my position and a lot of people have dealt with a lot of scrutiny and bullying as you said common sense i've had people and and i'm not the i'm not the kind of person to be confrontational in a mean-spirited way but i feel like if you push my buttons enough i might say something and i've seen people like try to take photos of me or whatever and they think they're being sneaky. Ah, and some people don't even try to be sneaky. They walk <laughs> up to me on the street in downtown with their phone out in front of their hand taking pictures. And I'm just like, seriously? And it's just like a really it, it in a way as an empathetic person, it makes me sad for that person. Yeah. That they haven't had the opportunities to be taught and and understand you shouldn't do that. But it also, it's very enraging in the moment because you just want to be like, how do you not know this? (laughs) Or what, if you do know it, why are you being so brazen?
1: I think fortunately me and Will are both have it in our nature to question things. And so when I first, that's why this dynamic works. So by the way, for podcasting, but (laughs) all nonsense aside, when I met, Will told me, he goes, okay, I'm short. Everyone knows. If you have any questions, feel free to ask me. Um, and ah. so he put it on the table and and we went through the whole thing. Can you write all the rides at Disney World? How does that work? But Will made it a priority from the beginning to say, hey, I am who I am. I'm an open book. And you're free to ask questions. And again, as you said, as long as you do it respectfully, which I, I think is one of the greatest things about Will is, is that we share is it's in our nature to question things extensively. Uh, We get quite fanatical about that. When it comes to vetting information online, I like to see if I can find primary sources, direct quotes, press releases, things like that. Try to see what the nature of something is. Again, like David said, looking deeper, looking beyond the headline, What's the motive here? All headlines are meant to be persuasive, to pique your curiosity about something. Is this story sponsored? Did, are there mm-hmm. at least four more sources or other stories that, that support this? You have to evaluate and see, is this is this news station or publication or newspaper, whatever it may be, are they consistent? Are they reliable? Do they have a habit of reporting misinformation to, to promote a certain agenda? It's definitely one of those things where in, in order to feel uh, truly informed, at least personally, uh, I need—I need to feel like I've done my homework extensively. I need to have a really mm. comprehensive and, view of the landscape.
2: And if you're ever not sure, I know this is an old one, but it's a good one. Snopes.com, yes. S-n-o-p-e-s. It is a as a website that does nothing but debunk or verify shocking things that go around online. When you whenever you get emailed something, whenever someone posts something,
0: just go to Snopes. Snopes is a great resource, one that I've used for a long time. <laughs> of course you have to trust Snopes in the first place. But there comes a certain point when and this takes me back to I went to a college prep type school and in eighth grade in particular, we did a lot of philosophical research and talking and just like literally had uh, my humanities teacher as either a student or like a professor also as like in philosophy we were always just thinking about thinking and it, it it makes you it can make you feel insane when you really try to like really think to yourself okay can I really trust this can I really trust this can I really trust this there has to be something at some point where you just have to trust
1: i love anyway. that idea though of, of thinking about thinking i think that's the essence of philosophy but when you think of philosophy like you think of plato and that's daunting but in the essence it really just is thinking about thinking i love that one. it's a good quote mm-hmm.
0: but uh, what i was going to say is uh, rewinding back to the medical aspect in particular and thinking about the days of your with yahoo answers and quora I mean core is still a thing or whatever be the case and sometimes it's just funny to go on there and see what people say but if i'm in the mood to actually get some real information these days i find and you mentioned crowdsourcing reddit to be a really good place of first person account of certain things of experiences whether they be travel whether they be medical. And to give a specific medical example, my mother-in-law, she deals with a chronic invisible medical condition called CRPS. It is like an incurable type of pain that affects the nerves and that kind of thing.
1: It's a pain syndrome.
0: Yes. Yeah, I was
1: just going to (laughs) say. Off the top of my head.
0: She dealt with it for a good while now. And my wife and I have been together for 14 plus years. I've known her for a long time as well. And and watching her suffer has been hard and seeing all the different things that she's tried and, and it not working is also hard. And recently I started to look up the subreddit and sure enough, there is one. Wow. And so people talk about, I tried this, I tried that, and it's just much more relatable. Once again, harkening back to that social media, parasocial interaction, casual nature of stuff. But yeah. and get to know a little bit more about that topic through the eyes of people that have experienced it. And in some ways, it's almost a more modern Wikipedia. And Reddit just it's really gone from funny meme social media type website to a vast source of information. And oftentimes, if you search for something, a Reddit link will pop up in like the first ten hits these days. And it can be a really great source of information.
2: Yeah, seconded. I'm a big movie nut. And uh, a lot of times I'll be like, did, did anyone else find that incredibly implausible what just happened? And I'll I'll go to Google and I'll type interstellar final scene or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And as you say, often it's a Reddit conversation that comes up with just the answer I'm looking for.
0: And, and really, there's not another place online like it in some cases. And, and even given the movie example saying, what the heck did I just watch? What was? What did <laughs> yeah. the ending mean? Yeah. And then you go on there, and then you get, like, excited because, especially if it's, like, a TV show finale, some conspiracy that this person has written, like, a, a, a minor uh, novella about this is going to happen because of this. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, yeah, that's definitely going to happen. And so it, it can be fun for just entertainment as well david thank you so much for joining us i had a blast i hope you did it just felt like old friends talking to me i love that and rom thank you for joining me as well
1: thank you so much for having me on board